Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's Subcast. Welcome back to the Substack. It's Matt Goodwin here. It's great to have you with us. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Nigel Bigger, who is Regis Professor Emeritus of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. He directs the MacDonald Centre for Theology, Ethics and Public Life and is, for the purpose of today's conversation, the author of the new book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. Uh, Nigel, it's good to have you with us. Uh, Thanks, Matt, for the opportunity to talk. And just uh, by way of introduction, the reason I really wanted to talk with Nigel about his book is firstly we're having a very big debate in the country about who we are, about our history, about the legacy of empire, about the so-called culture wars. Um, Secondly, we are having another parallel discussion about cancel culture, political correctness, um, what's happening within the universities. And I should put my cards on the table and say Nigel and I've known each other for a few years now, mainly because of our shared interest in what is happening within the universities, which really brings me to my first question, Nigel, which is perhaps you could uh, tell our listeners, for those who don't already know, how this book on colonialism on the British Empire came about in the first place, because it is quite a remarkable story. Yes, Matt. Uh, so let's go back to uh... 2017. Um, In July, I and um, John Darwin, who is an eminent, perhaps the preeminent historian writing in English on empire worldwide, uh, launched a project called Ethics and Empire, designed to look at how people from ancient China to the modern period have viewed empire in their own time, uh, and to do it from an, an ethical point of view. And then in November, I published an article in the London Times in which I argued what I thought was a completely anodyne point, although an important one, that we British can find uh, cause for both shame and pride in our imperial past. A couple of weeks later, um, I uh, was the subject of, of one of what turned out to be three uh, online mass denunciations uh, that appeared in the space of a week uh, condemning my project. Um, uh, The last two were signed by um, uh, several hundred academics, um, um, the second one by 58 of them in my own university here in Oxford. Um, And uh, four days after the first online denunciation was published, uh, John Darwin abruptly resigned from the project, um, ostensibly for personal reasons. Um, so that, that's how I fell into the culture war on colonialism five years ago. Um, to cut a, a long story short, uh, one of the upsides of the uh, row in December was that uh, in, I think, March, April 2018, uh, Robin Baird Smith from Bloomsbury Publishing met with me and suggested I write a book about colonialism, which uh, eventually, I uh, agreed to do. Uh, we signed a contract, and I produced the text of the um, of the first full draft at the end of 2020. 
And what happened at that point? Uh, in January 21, Robin wrote back to me saying that he was speechless, was the word he used, uh, because of the uh, rigour and thoroughness of what I'd written. He said it was uh, an important book. He repeated that twice. And he um, predicted it would sell between fifteen and 20,000 copies. So it would make Bloomsbury uh, a, a modest, uh, small fortune. And then three months later, out of the blue, I got an email from the top of Bloomsbury saying that uh, they decided to postpone publication um, indefinitely because, quote, public feeling was unfavorable. And I, um, I was stunned. Uh, my wife, being a man, Matt, you may know this, our emotions kind of trail behind us. We don't, we're not quite sure what we feel, but my wife tells me I was devastated. Um, because I had no alternative publisher, and I, the, the, obviously the thought of my, my book not getting published uh, distressed me. I, I thought it was a really important book myself. I, in, in my own humble opinion, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, but, but, but most of all, what horrified me was the thought that uh, every publisher in the UK might behave the same way, in which case important ideas uh, that, that swim against the tide and that challenge orthodoxies that might be thoroughly mistaken would never get published in this country. And that horrified me. Um, uh, happily, uh, I was directed to HarperCollins and uh, signed a contract with them in August, and, and they brought out the book yesterday. Thank goodness. Have you had any correspondence from Bloomsbury since, or, or anybody within the publishing industry that's given you a, a sort of sense as to why they took that decision was it was it pressure from staff was it was it sort of senior management i mean i'm just curious about how no absolutely, absolutely. how these decisions are made uh, yeah, I, i'm curious too because as you as you we both know it happens a lot in in academia and i'm really puzzled as to why intelligent grown-ups behave the way they do so this is what i know um a source within bloomsbury told me that uh, what had happened was that junior staff, um, for want of a scientific word, woke staff, um, agitated um, and protested about having to work on material they regarded as objectionable. Now, um, um, the Times journalist who published an article, uh, was it last Saturday, um, approached them and they said, said nothing to do with that, they said. They said, uh, uh, Bigger uh, wanted uh, to have his book published earlier, and he volunteered to to opt out of the contract with us. Um, I published online yesterday um, um, quotations from the correspondence that I had with Bloomsbury team in, in March and April 21, which demonstrates without a doubt that the claim Bloomsbury have made is a false claim. Uh, I, I uh, did not volunteer to uh, leave the contract. Um, Therefore, the only explanation they've given is demonstrably an untrue one, um, which m means that I'm highly sceptical of their denial that the real reason is that um, junior staff agitated. And for some reason, yet again, uh, grown-up senior management caved in. And that in itself reflects this somewhat stifling debate that, that we have at the moment when it comes to things like empire and history people appear to be unable to consider alternative viewpoints and one of the uh, points you make in your book uh, quite early on is you say there is a more 
historically accurate, fairer, more positive story to be told about the British Empire than the anti-colonialists want us to hear. And the importance of that story is not just past but present, not just historical but political. What is at stake is not merely the pedantic truth about yesterday, but the self-perception and self-confidence of the British today and the way they conduct themselves in the world tomorrow. What do you mean by that, this, this notion that there is a different story about our past and about empire than the anti-colonialists who tend to dominate the debate, particularly within higher education and what we might call the culture, the wider culture? What, what do you mean by that? So there are two questions there. Uh, one is, uh, what is a fair reading of our colonial past? What's the truth about it? And secondly, um, uh, why is getting a fair reading, why is getting the reading right important for the, for the present? So as for the reading of the past, I mean, readers can, of my book can make up their own minds. Uh, but my view in a nutshell is that, yes, um, over the 300 odd years of British uh, imperial endeavour worldwide from British Columbia to New Zealand, um, bad things happened, bad things were done, things uh, that should horrify us and things that we should lament. Um, um, the, the past was, a, was, in our terms, dreadful, usually. <laughs> Most people suffered dreadfully. Um, uh, and um, no one should be surprised that um, a state, an imperial state operating over three centuries all over the world, um, made mistakes and did bad things sometimes. Uh, there's not a, not a long-standing state in the world that doesn't have um, crimes and misdemeanors to its record. So the British Empire was not not extraordinary in that at all. Um, and, and that's what the anti-colonialists want to focus on. It's, it's uh, common nowadays to uh, use the words colonialism and slavery in the same breath, as if they were the same thing as if colonialism, British colonialism, was nothing but slavery and the um, abhorrent um, racism that justified the enslavement of Africans because they were subhuman or less human. Um, the problem is with that, um, just to take one instance, is that, um, as most of us know when we are reminded, Britain was among the first states in the history of the world to abolish the slave trade within its uh, territories worldwide. Uh, Denmark, I think, was the first. But then Britain took the lead in suppressing the slave trade and slavery uh, from Brazil, uh, across Africa, uh, India, uh, Australasia, both the trade and the institution for 150 years. So, so the, the bit of the British colonialism that is closest to us was committed to anti-slavery on the basis of um, a largely Christian view that all human beings, regardless of race and of cultural development, are basically equal in the sight of God. Uh, now, for some reason, uh, and this is what needs explaining, the anti-colonialists uh, want us to forget all about that and to pretend as if we haven't moved on since uh, uh, we indulged in slavery. In fact, we're still in the same place and we need to repent of it, to which the answer is, well, we did two centuries ago. Um, so I could go on. Uh, my main point about the history is the, the story of the British Empire contains uh, moments of uh, heroic uh, endeavour, 
humanitarian endeavor as well as as uh, um, dreadful injustice. And and I would argue that the liberal and humanitarian impulses in the empire became stronger as time went on. Um, now, why does that matter today? Well, let's just think think a moment about um, what the anti-colonialists say. So they're not. There's no interest at all on the part of the anti-colonialists with non-white, non-European, non-British empires. None at all. So uh, they couldn't care at all about the centuries of Arab empire, for example. They couldn't care about the Comanche empire in the southwest of the of North America in the 1700s, nor the Zulu empire in the 1820s in southern Africa, nor present Chinese empire. No one, no one cares about that. Um, so why is this focus on European and British empire? Well, uh, I interpret it as being um, really a focus on the West, because the British Empire, until the interwar period, 1990-1939, was the leading European Western power. And even now, although the US um, took over the mantle of leadership in 1945, um, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand uh, remain um, important pillars of the West um, in its opposition to um, authoritarian, violently authoritarian uh, regimes in, uh, in Moscow and Beijing. Um, so the target here is the West, and um, the target is the record of the West. And if the record of the West, in, in, in this case, the record of the British Empire, is a litany of racism and um, exploitation and slavery and uh, grotesquely disproportionate violence. If that's our record, who would, be, who would want to believe in us? I mean, who wants to keep faith in, in what's been built? Why don't we erase it, have a revolution, start from, from scratch? Because the past is just shameful. Uh, so I, I think this is really an assault. The motives for anti-colonialism will, will vary. And I, I don't myself suppose that um, many anti-colonialists, except perhaps on the hard left, are in deliberate uh, uh, alliance with, with um, Putin and, and uh, President Xi in China to undermine faith in the West, but it certainly serves the, the purposes of um, um, communist China and uh, kleptocratic Russia right now. Mm. What, what would you say to the argument that, that has been put forward by some, that by revisiting um, our history, revisiting how we think about our history, how we think about the legacy of empire, including the more negative aspects, that essentially this is also about new members of the national community, post-1960s members of the national community, trying to adapt themselves to our national story, trying to include themselves in the story of who we are by... Um, pressing the rest of us to think um, about what happened in the past. I mean, think about some of the recent contributions um, in the debate, you know, uh, people like Satnam Sanghera, Kahinda Andrews, people like that, who say, you know, essentially um, minority communities within Britain won't really be able to to integrate fully until we've we've, we've had this discussion about about empire, including the, the more negative aspects. That, that's a, a very good point, and I I, uh, I quite agree that um, 
uh, we ought to become, all of us ought to become uh, more aware of the contributions of immigrants to this country in, in the past 50, 60, 70 years from the West Indies or from India or wherever. Uh, um, and um, yes, we should learn more about the history of immigration and the experience of immigrants in this country, absolutely. Um, so the, 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 there's no question in my mind about that. Um, does that mean, therefore, that uh, we need to be, uh, we need to adopt a story that tells about all the, the bad things that white people did to black people in the past? Um, for example, slavery? Well, for sure. I think, I think all British people should know about the 150 years of British involvement in the slave trade and slavery, pr provided <laughs> that it's put in the context of the fact that everybody, black and white, was doing slavery in the uh, up until the um, 1700s, including escaped slaves in Jamaica and freed slaves in North Carolina as late as 1860. Um, so by, by all means, let, let's remind ourselves of what of, of bad things that white people did to, to blacks, um, provided we don't suppose that racism was an invention of whites, because it certainly wasn't. Um, but then, uh, Matt, um, we also need to take on board that, <laughs> no surprise here, not all non-white Britons think the same thing about these things. So you'll, you'll have Kehinde Andrews, I believe, suggesting that Churchill was equivalent to Hitler. Uh, Satnam Sagera, in his book Empire Land, on the one hand, throws up his hands early on and says, my God, there's a whole lot of history here. I can't, I can't master it. But then, uh, um, for some reason best known to himself, uh, uh, chooses uh, um, a very strong... Um, judgment makes a very strong judgment that that the empire was essentially nastily racist. Um, so Satnam's book is, is is quite good if you want to know what a young British Sikh has experienced here. Uh, not so good on the history. Um, so uh, by all means, let, let's 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 have um, diverse non-white voices telling us what they think. But let, let's have diverse voices because there are plenty of non-white people. Uh, who don't think as um, um, as don't paint as relentlessly a negative picture as Satnam Sangera and Kehinde Andrews. Can I can I just pick you up on the word that you mentioned there in terms of uh, the word was context? Why why do you think we we seem to have lost the ability to situate history in context? Why do you think that we are seemingly obsessed with viewing things that happened in the past in isolation? such as empire and, and not comparing it to to other historical phenomena or not not situating the good with the bad um, the positive with the negative why within our national conversation have we seemingly lost the ability to to situate these things in context and I ask that because reading your book it sort of raises the question of yes but compared to what you know many of these analyses of of Britain's empire, you know, really don't situate it alongside other empires. They don't situate our history alongside the history of others. We're essentially led into a cul-de-sac and not asked to compare yeah. the events in our past with, with the events elsewhere. Why have we lost this ability to compare and contrast with others? Where's that gone? 
that's a, a very good question to which I, I don't have a ready answer. So here are some kind of on the hoof responses, Matt. Um, one reason probably is political. <laughs> there are clearly some people who don't want us to focus on the context. They want to focus on, on, on the wickedness of white people. Uh, so there's a deliberate, uh, um, a deliberate attempt to forget about the context, to magnify the evils that, that white slavers did in the 1700s, uh, and to forget about the fact that <laughs> black people sold other black people to white traders in West Africa. And black people um, uh, sometimes buried African slaves alive in the uh, when they were burying uh, um, princes in West Africa. Um, so th there's a political reason that they don't want to relativize uh, white wrongdoing. Um, the other thing is, I mean, I, I'm I'm um, I, I'm often struck and irritated. <laughs> by um, the way in which um, film and television nowadays, uh, maybe this has always been the case, I don't know, can't cope with the difference of the past. So you, you, you I mean, I saw uh, a recent biopic about Emily Bronte recently um, that kept making her into a, a 21st century woman. Uh, I, I think the, the thesis was that you know, she, could, she could only have written Wuthering Heights if she'd had a flaming passionate affair with a man because uh, I mean uh, how on earth could she write about um, emotion and passion if she hadn't the, the truth the truth is that she didn't <laughs> uh, she was a Victorian lady she never married uh, never as far as we know had sex uh, and yet um, uh, wrote the story out of her imagination but the, the the filmmaker couldn't cope with that and I myself find find I'm fascinated by history because of the difference because it 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 it, it 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 gives me as a 21st century Britain perspective in my own time that the world we take around us that we take entirely for granted as being kind of cosmic furniture. It's not cosmic furniture. It's 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 an accident and achievement of history, which among other things is why you need to take very good care of it. <laughs> and in that sense, I'm conservative. This is not to be taken for granted. We, this didn't land from nowhere. It's been built, and it it might not have been built, and it could. It could be dissolved. Um, so a, an odd lack of historical imagination. And why is that? Well, I, I, I imagine, um, I can only imagine that lots of people teaching history in schools themselves lack the imagination and, and don't teach kids just how different the past was and to wonder at that and, and to thank God in heaven <laughs> that our present is so much better in terms of health and wealth and security. Um, so I think, you know, there's a political motive there, uh, but there's also something wrong, I think, with, with um, there must be something wrong with the way in which we're educating our, our kids. Um, and then, of course, uh, um, um, whether, it, whether we're talking about university professors or, or school kids or the general public, um, about empire widespread ignorance people just don't know and if all they hear is is the kind of um politically filtered uh, story being pushed and promoted by the bbc and others then if, if no one tells a different story what are they to think uh, so one thing i 
if, if my book achieved nothing else, I hope it will tell um, Britons, old and young today, the whole complicated, fascinating, lamentable, wonderful story about um, the imperial and colonial endeavours of our recent ancestors. I, re- I remember reading an interview with Neil Ferguson, the historian, quite recently, in which he said that his book Empire, which I think was published in 2000, probably couldn't be published today, given that the debate about empire has become very uh, sensitive uh, and arguably one-sided. But but in a sense, you've proved Neil wrong with the publication of this book, that actually there is a there is an interest, there is a market in people wanting to hear the other side, or you might just say a balanced view of of uh, the legacy of empire. Would you would you agree with that? Yes, yeah, so I read uh, Neil's book, which was published, I think, first in two thousand three. I read it twenty years ago and enjoyed it. Um, after I finished a draft of my own book, I reread Neil's book, and I, I still think it's a very good book. Uh, it's very balanced. It's it's not all gung-ho about the empire at all so it's, it's rather like mine and so um the fact that my book has been published uh does i'm glad to say uh, disprove neil's um uh, pessimism um however um well the, the, the other the other uh, uh, positive sign is that there is no doubt there's a there's a market for what um for the kind of position that I take and that he has taken. Um, I mean, I mentioned that the commissioning editor at Bloomsbury predicted sales of 15 to 20,000 copies. Um, the the book has been on sale. Well, it's, <laughs> it was published yesterday, although um, I think it's been on sale in London Waterstones for a few days. And I had a report from one of my uh, friends that... Um, uh, Waterson's Piccadilly had run out of copies by lunchtime. Um, my literary agent um, reported a few days ago that the book, even before it was published, uh, was was in the top fifty Am- uh, Amazon bestsellers. So there's a market. Uh, people want to read this stuff. The problem is, um, not many publishers want them to read it. Um, now, 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 the fact that HarperCollins took mine up and 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 has published it means that some publishers are willing to let the public uh, read uh, more conservative, moderate, reasonable views such as mine, but many aren't. So when I when I realised that Bloomsbury were going to cancel my contract, um, there were a num- there were, for a few weeks I had no idea who else would publish it, and I was talking to my literary agent and. Uh, the best he could come up with were small independent publishers in the UK and, and the US. None of the, ma- none of the major houses would consider it until I found HarperCollins. Um, and I'm told, and I was told a few days ago by the novelist uh, Lionel Shriver, that she thinks in this country at the moment, only HarperCollins would have the um, uh, whatever it takes Publish stuff that um, swims against the the woke stream. Um, so the situation is not as bad as as Neil feared, uh, but it's still pretty precarious, and it's it's still a cause for for worry on the part of those of us who want a classically liberal society where 
um, um, orthodoxies, um, um, whatever they are, uh, get to suffer uh, criticism and testing. Much of the book actually takes aim at many of the conventional wisdoms that are out there about empire. You've organised the chapters, I know, into essentially questions. Um, so it's not a chronological reading of of Britain's empire. It's uh, organised around questions to do with whether whether the imperial endeavour was driven by greed and the lust to dominate, whether we should speak of colonialism and slavery in the same breath, you know, whether the empire was essentially racist, how far was it based on the conquest of land, did it involve genocide, was it driven by economic exploitation, uh, did, um, since colonial government was not democratic, did that make it illegitimate, and was the empire essentially violent, and was that violence pervasively racist and, and terroristic? So you've You've not shied away from taking on the, uh, the, the sort of main claims um, that tend to dominate dominate the uh, the universities, and I mean let, let let's just take a couple of those. I mean, in your third chapter, I mean, you just simply take on this question: Was the British Empire racist? Um, and what's your moral evaluation, your assessment of that? Well, the first thing I, I do is to, to sit back and think about what racism is. And I, I, I wished we would do more of that um, because what's happened is um, uh, under uh, willful pressure from activists, um, the concept of racism has been expanded. Um, so that, for example, um, anyone like me who wants to say that the British Empire contained good as well as bad, and that white people, some white people, um, were heroic humanitarians and um, um, helped non-white people, often with the help of non-white people. Um, um, someone like me who says those things is labelled a racist and a white supremacist. Um, and someone like me who says that uh, it, it does make sense to, to make... Um, um, critical cultural comparisons. So when I, as a 21st century Briton, look back at my uh, my medieval Anglo-Saxon ancestors, do I feel superior to them in terms of uh, scientific knowledge, in terms of uh, medicine, in terms of political organisation, in terms of um, the way we deal with criminals? You bet I do. Um, so if I feel superior in certain respects to uh, my own ancestors. Uh, why, when I find uh, practices um, that my own ancestors uh, uh, performed, when I find them in, in other cultures, uh, shouldn't I have the same reaction? Um, um, and so, so when when people like Cecil Rhodes pitched up on the coast of Southern Africa in 1870, um, he felt himself to be, in many respects, he felt himself to belong to a civilization or a culture. There was many respects um, superior to um, Bantu culture uh, at that time. In in um, not in every respect, but in many respects, and I think he was right. So, one question is: Is it racist to say such a thing? And I say it's not. It's really not. Um, and there is a a really important distinction to be made between uh, the view that uh, another people, another race, is naturally 
genetically, biologically inferior and destined to be ruled by another race forever, which is, is scientific biological racism, and I find it abhorrent, and saying that um, different peoples at different times may be more or less developed and compared to other peoples uh, um, uh, inferior in terms of development. Um, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to say, to, to say the latter. Um, okay, so that, that's that's reflection on what what we're talking about. When we're talking about racism. So was was that what was the British Empire racist? The answer is yes and no. Um, yes, um, it contained uh, um, uh, lamentable quantities of um, racial arrogance and and prejudice and rudeness to uh, on the part of Britons to non-white peoples. Um, uh, but again, I, I, I would just relativize that by saying that um, the British and Europeans didn't invent racism. For example, um, the Irish novelist Gerald Hanley, who was in British uniform in 1940 in Somaliland, reports that he was unable to persuade his Somali troops to obey the orders of a Bantu NCO because the Somalis regarded Bantu as natural slaves. Okay. Racism is a bad thing, uh, but it, it, it's, it's a universal human propensity, and there was plenty of it in the British Empire. But um, on the other hand, uh, when people like uh, Gandhi in the 1900s and uh, Desmond Tutu in the 1960s uh, came to Britain, uh, they, they experienced um, nothing but kindness. And according to his obituary in... Uh, uh, at the end of last year, uh, end of 21, um, it, it was only it was in Britain where he discovered the, the police were polite and as a black man, he didn't have to stand at the back of a queue or in a different queue. It was only in Britain he discovered just how racist South Africa was. Um, and then and then there were there were plenty of colonial officials uh, who found uh, um, Indian culture, um, Hindu culture, uh, Sanskrit manuscripts um, um, found native cultures really fascinating um, and devoted a fair bit of their lives to retrieving it, translating it, um, and and protecting it. Um, and there were lots of humanitarians who devoted their lives to emancipating uh, non-white slaves. So, was there was there racism in the British Empire? Yes, there was. Was the British Empire essentially racist? No, it wasn't. Um, and the, the commitment to anti-slavery um, and uh, the commitment of the whole empire in 1939 to, to fight the massively murderous racist regime in Nazi Berlin uh, um, are symptoms of the fact that close to the heart of the empire were policies built on the conviction of um, basic human equality of the members of all races. And when you put these arguments forward within the literature, I mean, it, it seems to me that, you know, when we read books such as colonialism and also articles by scholars such as Bruce Gilley and others, that almost um, entering into the academic community has not become an impossible task, but, but it, it, it becomes very apparent that these arguments are, you know, either vilified or completely ignored. Um I mean, what what reaction are you expecting from within within the academic environment to your book? Uh, 
<laughs> you know, what's what's the what's the best outcome um, for you, or what are you expecting to happen? <laughs> uh, Matt, um, in the last five years, I, I, I have, um, I'm afraid, acquired a, a rather cynical view of most of my academic colleagues, and I, I suspect you may have acquired something rather rather like that. Um, so, so my main desire is that my book um, inform and encourage um, the, the vast majority of my fellow British citizens. So in a sense, I, 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 I don't care primarily what my academic colleagues think, because they're not that important. Uh, there are millions of people in Britain and around the world. I mean, I, I, I hope people in Canada and Australia, New Zealand, India, Southern Africa uh, will read it and um, be informed about the the all the things the British Empire was the good bits as well as the bad. But focusing on on the response from academics, um, well, there there are of course some academics, um, um, as you know, who who are on my side and have been very supportive. Uh, I took care to um, solicit pre-publication commendations from uh, 11 people, most of whom are historians, because um, I anticipated that some of my my anti-colonialist critics will uh, do their best to discredit the book because I'm not an historian, which I'm not. I'm an ethicist. Um, and although my first line of defense is to say, folks, this is a moral analysis of empire and um, I have quite a few qualifications and quite a lot of experience as an ethicist, and I don't know of any historian who has any qualifications whatsoever in ethics. So if we're going to pull rank, I'd do that. But I wanted to to, um, to signal to people who might want to buy the book that even though Bigger is not a professional historian, there are um, professional historians of some eminence and weight, uh, black as well as white, uh, women as well as men, who think that what I, I've written is um, scrupulous, well-researched, uh, and fair, and, and those words are used by more than one of the uh, commenders. Uh, but, but frankly, Matt, what I expect of most of my colleagues in academe is silence, because uh, as you and I uh, have experienced over the over the years, what we've discovered is that. Um, well, I, well, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. What I've discovered is that most of my academic colleagues are terrified of conflict. And, and you know, to be, to be fair, we, we all have to choose our battles and fighting is exhausting. And so many of my colleagues may decide this is not their fight. And besides, they don't know enough to, to know whether Bigger is right or whether Bigger's critics are right. Um, and so what I've experienced from a lot of my colleagues is silence or they'll sidle up to me uh, uh, privately and say, "Oh, we, you know, well done. Uh, uh, we, I, I do support what you, what you, what you're doing and writing. It's just that they won't say so in public." Uh, so there is there is a kind of conspiracy of silence. People are scared, and it's partly because, and this is this is, I think is, is the design of the of the the woke anti-colonialist academics. Uh, they want to intimidate their colleagues into um, keeping quiet. Um, and I, I'm quite convinced the noise and the aggression and the abuse uh, the heap on people like me um, is designed, it's a form of terrorism. 
because uh, they know that they can, um, uh, even though they're a minority, uh, if they can make the majority uh, keep quiet, then um, they have dominant power. In your final chapter, just building on that, you you consider the nature and the motives of of anti-colonialism and and its advocates and its bearing upon Britain's future. And what do you think they want to see? The um, sort of minds and theories that tend to dominate this area of research now within the universities. What is the what is the end game? Um, what do they want to see? Um, and where, where do you think this is going unless we do get to this more balanced view of of who we are? Um, this this, you know, which you which you do write eloquently about this need to look as much at the the good and the positive as the, as the bad and the negative. Where, where, where will, we, will we end up? Well, first of all, where do the anti-colonialist agitators want us to get to? I mean, in some cases, there's clearly uh, uh, a material interest. Uh, so um, uh, some agitators uh, are claiming reparations, so, so they want money, um, possibly not for themselves privately, but they want money for their community or their, or their country, um, um, or, or they want money for their race. So that there's, a, there's a material interest there. Um, and that there are lots of, of um, um, activists, um, in, in a sense, whose, whose whole reason for being is to um, agitate and exploit, uh, agitate about a problem. And so the, 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 the longer the problem is believed to exist, then the longer they get to do their, their agitating. So there's a sense of self-perpetuating desire to, to, to big up the problem. So even though, I mean, I'm 67, I've been around for a while, and it is patently obvious to me that in this country we are far, far, far less racist than we were 50 years ago, as far as, and also far less socially snobbish than we were, thank goodness. Um, but the, the activists want us to believe that nothing has changed, um, and partly because if the problem was solved, they, they'd have no job. So there are interests of material interests, there are political interests, and, and on the part of academics right now, um, you know, if you, if you, if you write, if, if you are teaching and proposing to do research on um, topics about race and gender and colonialism, and you show that you have bought into critical race theory, uh, you will get the appointments, and you will get the promotions, and you will get the grants. If you don't show uh, um, um, that you, you, you're buying into the current orthodoxies, uh, you will get none of those. So lots of academics have career reasons uh, to uh, perpetuate um, the false, the falsely um, negative story. Uh, uh, then, to be absolutely fair, now some of them really believe it. Some of them believe the story they're telling, although I have to say, the fact that uh, they are, generally speaking, in my experience, unwilling to give and take reasons about the story suggests to me that their attachment to the, to the story is, is less than honest, because honest people are willing to hear criticisms. These people aren't. They, they uh, as I put it in a, an article published yesterday, they counsel because they can't answer. <laughs> they counsel because they can't answer. Um, where do I think we're going to land? Well, 
Um, I am hopeful that um, we can turn things around in the UK. I, mean, I think the US is, a, is would be, if I were American, I'd be much more despondent about the possibility of turning things around. I think we can turn the ra- things around here, um, partly because in the last 40 months, um, a number of organizations and and projects pushing back against the the current authoritarian wokery um, have developed uh, the 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 bill going through Parliament um, that would uh, bolster free speech and academic freedom in universities uh, will be will I think major, make a major difference to the strategic cultural institutions that are our universities in enabling people like me. And, and younger scholars who think like me but don't don't dare speak like me, um, enabling them to to speak their minds without fear of suffering uh, penalty. Um, so I, I'm hopeful we can turn things around, uh, but there's a big battle to be had. Uh, and most of all, I'm hopeful, Matt, frankly, because having stared uh, uh, carefully at what a lot of the anti-colonialists have to say, uh, I, I find in, in many cases. Um, and I show this in my book in certain cases, in many cases, um, these emperors are wearing no clothes. When you, stare, when you look closely, when you, when you forget about the noise they're making and look at them and read them and think about what they're saying, uh, it, it's just untrue. It's untrue and it can be shown to be untrue. Then that gives me a lot of, lot of hope. Well, that's a great, uh, a great moment to uh, bring the conversation to a close, Nigel Bigger. And I would urge all... Uh, listeners to engage with the book, whatever your personal views, uh, colonialism, a moral reckoning is out now, uh, has just come out. And um, please let us know what you think about it, engage with the arguments. And um, if you want to engage with the author, with Nigel Bigger, you'll find him on Twitter. And um, I'm sure he would be more than willing to have a discussion with you. Nigel, thank you for your time today. Congratulations on publishing the book after such a tumultuous journey and um, we wish it uh, we wish it all the success in the world and thank you for joining us uh, thanks very much Matt for such a, a thoughtful conversation mm-hmm.